Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 3. Philippians, chapter 3. We continue our morning study of this marvelous letter to the church of Philippi. And if you remember last week, at the end of chapter 2, the Apostle Paul wrote that he was hoping to send both Timothy and Epaphroditus to the church. Two men who genuinely loved the Philippian believers and wanted to be of gospel service to them. And as Pastor uh, Dean preached last week, they didn't suffer from the MMI syndrome, right? The me, myself, and I syndrome, but truly loved uh, the church. Paul himself also uh, desired to be one day able to be free of his chains, to get the chance to be face-to-face with these dear believers as well. So now as chapter 3 opens, you'll notice that Paul begins with the word, finally. He is beginning the conclusion of his thoughts for this church and for us today. His final instructions, if you will, to the church. But just like a good preacher, he still has 44 verses of things to say before he actually concludes his conclusion. So we have much to learn in these next couple of chapters. We'll be focusing on just verses 1 through 7. So let's read those together this morning. Uh, Philippians 3, 1 through 7, this is God's holy and inerrant word. Paul writes, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word to us today. We thank you for the privilege to gather before you as brothers and sisters in Christ. We thank you for giving us your spirit to teach us the word and to apply the word to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in a recent article in Psychology Today, a a researcher describes a change in how we as Americans part from one another. Traditionally, when we part from other people, we say words like, goodbye, see you later, so long, or have a nice day. But now, recently, another phrase has crept into our national vocabulary. Be safe, be safe, be safe. So thus the researcher asked the question, when did this start happening? When did we start telling people, be safe, when we part? If you think about it, it's a very curious thing to say, unless your loved one happens to be uh, venturing out in some dangerous assignment. Well, according to a research, 
while saying be safe upon parting was certainly one of our options in the past. Uh, during COVID-19, uh, you guessed it, right? That became the number one choice among most people. It just became the way to say, be safe, be safe. It's also be, uh, for you young people, you know this already, if you know what a hashtag is, uh, older people, it became the leading hashtag in social media over the last 18 months, be safe. Well, so during the pandemic and now as it's winding down, it seems like this is the way we have simply learned to communicate that we deeply care about someone and we want everything to be all right after they leave us. Well, as you heard in our reading, the Apostle Paul begins his conclusion to his letter with the desire for the Philippian church to be safe. He wants it to, them to be safe in their Christian lives. And, and just like a good parent, he's willing to write the same things over and over, to say the same things over and over again in order to keep these Christians and us today from harm and danger so we can be safe. Now, we certainly, I think, live in a day and a time where it can be said that we're sort of addicted to safety somewhat. We, we want ourselves and our loved ones never to get hurt physically, emotionally, spiritually, relationally. We don't want any damage to happen to them. But as we think about this passage, Paul's view of how to be safe in the Christian life is radically different than what the world's definition of being safe is. So I think as we see these seven verses, we see three ways that we are to be safe. We can be safe as believers. And we find the first one in verse one, that there is safety in rejoicing in the Lord. There's safety in rejoicing in the Lord. Now, as we've studied through this letter to the Philippians, Paul has made repeated mentions of the word joy or rejoicing. Uh, he'll even say more of it later on. Uh, it's often seen, the, the, term, the word joy, the concept of joy, is one of the great themes of the letter to the Philippians. So now in this beginning of his long conclusion, he takes time right away to remind us, remind them and us, that they need to rejoice more specifically, for the first time in this letter, he adds the words, the all-important words, in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoicing or walking in joy is only possible, really, for the Christian. Why is that? Well, it's, it's because of our union with Christ. It's our union with Christ that we're able to find joy in difficult circumstances. And it is in the person and the work of Christ that we should spend our time rejoicing in. So he's really focusing our hearts right away that there's safety in, re in rejoicing. And we see it in the second part of that verse because immediately after giving this clear command, he tells them again, I don't mind repeating myself because, great words, it's safe for you. So that forces us to ask the question, what do you mean, Paul? Why, how is it safe to rejoice in the Lord? How is there safety in rejoicing? Well, we could think about immediately Nehemiah 8, verse 10, that familiar verse that says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Right away, we could go there and say, well, there you go. That's one way to be safe then. If, if in our joy in the Lord, we find strength, 
the strength of God, the power of God at work in our hearts, then certainly that brings us safety. But I would ask you to consider about some of the other ways that joy, that finding joy as distinct from the emotion of happiness, happiness that's transient, that's connected to our circumstances. But think about how joy keeps us safe. It keeps our hearts safe from things like anger and bitterness, self-pity and depression, all those hard emotions, right? Joy protects us from those. Joy prevents us from being too preoccupied with self and our circumstances. But also the, the practice of rejoicing in the Lord also keeps our minds safe from things like envy, jealousy, coveting, worry, and alike. The bottom line is that joy, again, is that attitude of the heart, different, different from happiness, that keeps us safe because it is Christ-centered, right? In all of our circumstances, it brings us back to Christ. So that's our first point of safety, according to Paul. And again, since it's brief, I will be brief there on that first one and move on to the second point. Secondly, there's safety in avoiding false teachers. We see that in verses two through three. There's safety in avoiding false teachers and their false doctrine. Look at verse two, Paul writes, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. These two little words, look out, are better translated, beware. Three times then Paul says, beware, beware, beware. Yes, more repetition, a threefold reminder of how to get to safety. Whenever we're telling anyone, beware, beware, beware. Paul is sounding the alarm. If he was writing in modern terms, times, he'd be putting the warning in all caps. Beware, beware, beware. Now, we have to make sure that we know that Paul is not telling the church at Philippi to beware of three different types of people or three different groups of people. In our context here in this letter and in others of Paul's letters, he's, he's referring to just one. And that's the people, the false teachers known as the Judaizers. You may have heard of those before in, in sermons or in Sunday school. The, the Judaizers, these false teachers of Paul's time who attacked the essential doctrine of salvation. And they did it. They attacked the essential doctrine of salvation by grace alone, by faith in Christ alone, at its very core, because what they taught was a salvation that was a mixture of some divine grace, but much human merit. Their emphasis was always on the latter, the things you had to do in order to be a child of God, to be one of his. Now, these false teachers were known well by Paul. Paul railed against the Judaizers in the book of Galatians. We read about them there. We also read them in his second letter uh, to the Corinthian church. So several times, uh, and in many ways, he had much experience with this seductive false teaching. So look what he tells this church. He says, beware. He says, look out. He says, be safe. And he, in, just in case the Philippians aren't taking him seriously, 
He uses three words, three very vivid descriptions to picture to them what exactly is the problem with these false teachers, who these people really were. So first, he calls them dogs. Now, children, he's clearly not meaning your fluffy family pet that you love so much. Not that kind of dog, right? He's referring to those mongrels that live in the streets, right? Those rabid, on-the-prowl sort of wolf-like dogs, I would picture. These are unclean dogs living in the, the streets of the time, among the garbage of this world, rabid and ready to attack anybody that would come near them. Those kinds of dogs. That's what these Judaizers were. They were dogs. But second, he calls them evildoers. Also translated for us, workers of evil. A better description, workers of evil. The, the Judaizers, you understand, like many of the false teachers of that day and of this day, are workers in the church. They're not outside the church, they're inside the church. These Judaizers labored as missionaries of their false gospel. They worked hard to spread their wicked doctrines to undermine the truth. They were supremely dedicated to their craft. They were trying to lure people to believe in a salvation that was at least partly by their own human efforts. And then thirdly, he uses the most vivid and gruesome description. He calls them mutilators of the flesh. Well, what is he doing there? He's describing, he's getting to the, the central right of the Judaizers. The Judaizers taught that Gentiles, those who had not been circumcised as babies because they weren't Jews, had to be circumcised as young people or adults in the flesh physically circumcised in order to be saved. They had to have that mark in order to be children of God. And because they taught that, they ignored the true circumcision of the heart. They ignored the fact that salvation was a change of the heart, not of the body. And so they turned their form of religion into simply a religious ritual that had to be practiced in order for the Gentile to become a Jew before he could become a Christian. So Paul actually didn't even consider what they were teaching to be true circumcision. The word there uh, that's translated mutilator or mutilate the flesh is a word concision, not circumcision, but concision, which is simply a cutting of the flesh. That's all it was. It wasn't true uh, religion at all. So dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. We get the idea, don't we? We get the idea that Paul makes it clear that these Judaizers, these false teachers, all false teachers must be avoided at all costs because their false gospel of works righteousness would ultimately lead people to hell, not to heaven as promised. So by way of our first application then, we have to ask ourselves, do we uh, take seriously the threat of false teachers today because they're still with us? Do we keep our eyes open? Do we look out for ourselves, for our children, for our church, for our denomination, for the church of Jesus Christ throughout the world? Or are we susceptible to allow false teaching to sort of sneak its way in whether through charismatic sort of speakers and preachers and teachers 
or through the, uh, the newest best-selling Christian book, uh, so-called Christian book, or through the entertainment media, many different ways that false teachers find their way in. Are we looking out for that? And even as important, or maybe more importantly, are we keeping ourselves safe from false teaching by remaining, gra remaining grounded in God's word, in sound doctrine, in the true gospel preaching of the, and teaching? Are we doing that? Well, thankfully, Paul, as he's telling us to beware, to look out, to be safe, he gives the Philippian church and us today the key way to be safe from false, false teachers. And you see it stated in verse three. Look at those words. He says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Do you hear it? These are words of our identity. And what Paul is saying is the way to look out and watch out and be safe from false teachers is know your identity in Christ. You are the circumcision. You are the ones that worship by the spirit of God. You are the ones that have your hearts changed by the spirit. You are the ones who give glory to Christ alone, not yourself. So we must hold tightly, right? We must hold tightly to that identity when the world offers us lots of other identities today to hold on to that they say is, are just as good or even better than this identity in Christ. Well, that leads us to our third point of safety. We are to be safe in rejoicing in the Lord. We are to be safe by knowing our identities in Christ and not succumbing to false doctrine and false teaching but finally, Paul says that there is safety in resisting self-confidence. And he spends his most time there, so we will as well. We see this in verses 4 through 7, but you actually see it at the end of verse 3, right? At the end of verse 3, he says again, we are the circumcision who put no confidence in the flesh. He's saying that the safety of the Christian life is found in the refusal to put our confidence in ourselves for our salvation, for our sanctification, for our entire lives. And again, this was the problem with the Judaizers. The Judaizers were promoting confidence in self and what self can do for salvation. But what Paul is doing here, I would submit to you, is he's, he's expressing to us the problem isn't just the false teachers, but we all on our own, in our own human weakness, in our own sinful hearts, we can get there too. We can start to put confidence into our, in our flesh, confidence in ourselves, all by ourselves. We don't need anybody to tempt us to go there. So look at what Paul then starts with in dis discussing this safety and resisting self-confidence. Look at verse 4. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Wow, Paul, that's pretty arrogant and pretty confusing, really, if you're reading that for the first time. Didn't you just write that true Christians put no confidence in the flesh? Now you turn around and saying, I, though, have reason to put confidence in the flesh. And if you think you have reason, I have more. 
Well, hopefully you recognize godly sarcasm when you see it. And Paul is brilliantly using this and in the next several verses will use himself as a case study to prove that if he doesn't have confidence in the flesh for salvation, you don't either. He's going to prove that to us, that we, it is absolutely foolish to look for our safety in self. And so he's going to demonstrate that he could be the most self-confident of all. Now look how he, he does it. He does it really in two parts. And the first part is, he says that he could be putting his confidence into what his parents gave him. Into what his parents gave him. And his parents gave him several things. First of all, you see, he writes that he was circumcised on the eighth day. Right? Circumcision is what his parents gave him. That was not his idea on the eighth day. And he begins there because that was the most important thing to the Judaizers, right? As I said previously, the most important thing was being circumcised. So Paul is saying here, hey, my parents circumcised me and they did it according perfectly according to the circumcision law, which was you had to do it on the eighth day. Couldn't wait to the ninth day. Couldn't do it on the sixth day. You had to do it on the eighth day. And his parents did it perfectly. Now, this was different for the Judaizers, who, because they were proselytizing Gentiles, typically Gentile adults, they would have been involved in most circumcisions for adults. So Paul is saying, I have it better than they do, much better. My parents gave me, again, something perfect. They gave me circumcision on the eighth day. We followed the law uh, to the letter. Uh, so I was circumcised as a baby, not later on, not as an adult, like so many other people did. So that's his first thing. My parents gave me that. But look, he says, my parents also made me an Israelite, right? Um, what he's saying here, when he says, I am of Israel, he is contrasting that with what many people were in Palestine in that day. Most people were not true Israelites. They were of mixed stock, right? If, if you know the history of God's people. And so the people living in there at that time, mixed stock, or they had been grafted into Israel, as scripture says, the Gentiles would have been grafted in, not true Israelites. But Paul says, hey, I descended from not only Abraham, but Isaac and Jacob, right? I came from Israel. I belong to the chosen people, the people of the covenant. And so could the Judaizers say that? Could they truthfully claim that they had this purity of descent? Probably not, but he could. And then third, he says, not only was I circumcised, not only did my parents give me the gift of being an Israelite, but I'm also of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, you might, that might stop you from it and say, now, how does that give you such great advantage, right? How does that give you uh, some great self-confidence if you could have it. There's a lot of discussion by commentators, but I'll boil it down to you probably the most, the thing that Paul was focusing on. And it was a couple of things. First, uh, if you remember, um, there were two favorite sons of Israel because they were the two that came from his most beloved wife, Rachel, right? Joseph and Benjamin. So that's one reason. He's in the favorite of the favorite, not those other 10, uh, but he's in, in Benjamin. And then also, it, he probably was referring to the fact that of Israel's favored sons, Joseph and Benjamin, it was Benjamin alone who remained with Judah 
in that uh, southern kingdom, remained loyal to Judah, and also returned with Judah after captivity and into the reconstituted Israel. So <clears throat> what he's basically saying here is, he's saying if indeed there's some saving value in this special distinction of being an Israelite, then as a Benjamite, I'm one of the most authentic Israelites. I'm one of the best Israelites there can be of the best tribe there could be of Israelites. So again, could the Judaizers make that case for themselves? Which leads him then to make this great summary statement. You see it there. He said, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. <laughs> that was a, that's an idiom, a way to say I'm the purest of the pure. I am the, of the best lineage you could possibly imagine. He's stressing the cleanness of his lineage, that he's, he's definitely a Hebrew. If there was a dictionary with the word Hebrew, his picture would have been right there, right? He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. So you hear what he's saying. He's saying, if what my parents gave me could save me, I'm at the front of the line, right? I have the greatest of advantage over anybody. So by application, what have your parents given you that can tempt you to put your self-confidence for your salvation in what they gave you? Maybe you come from a long line of Presbyterians, maybe even all the way to Scotland. Uh, you're a Presbyterian of Presbyterians. Or maybe you were blessed to have a father who was a pastor or a grandfather, or my great-grandfather was a preacher as well. Or maybe you were simply born in a Christian home <clears throat> and raised by Christian parents. Now, don't get me wrong. These are great blessings from the Lord, aren't they? But they don't save. When we put our confidence into these sorts of things, into the things our parents gave us, into the situation, by God's grace, we were born into, can oftentimes lull us into a false sense of security. Paul says it's dangerous. It's dangerous to our soul to find our confidence, our confidence for salvation and for our relationship with God based on what our parents have given us. But then Paul doesn't stop there. He says, there's another place I could find confidence and we could find confidence as well. He says, I could put my confidence in what I attained on my own, what I did by my own human effort. And he gives three things on his resume here. First, he says, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. We are told in the book of Acts that Paul was a son of a Pharisee who then chose himself to become a Pharisee. It was something you had to choose to be, and he chose it. He, uh, Galatians 1, verse 14, he writes how he advanced in the religion of the Pharisees uh, uh, beyond many of his uh, compatriots uh, because he was exceedingly, the quote is, he is exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. Now, again, this might cause you to question and say, wait a minute, Paul, how can you take pride? How can you have self-confidence in being a Pharisee? I thought I learned in Sunday school that Jesus regularly condemned Pharisees. I thought being a Pharisee was something you shouldn't be, <laughs> that you should repent of being a Pharisee. Yes, but you have to go back and remember where the Pharisees come, came from. 
You have to remember that it was during that intertestamental period between the Old and New Testament where, where the Pharisees actually originated as a response, as a reaction to the excesses and the sinfulness of the Jews during that time, who many of them imbibed the Greek pagan culture of their day. And so Pharisees originally were separatists. They were, they were separating themselves from the world, from the worldly Jews. Uh, they were ones, uh, as opposed to Sadducees and other religious leaders who accepted the entirety of the Torah, they, they wanted to also follow all of God's law in very detailed ways. But of course, we know that their great error occurred when they began thinking of themselves and thinking about their law keeping uh, as a way that would save them, as a way that would uh, bring on the Messiah, as a way that would uh, allow them to enter into the kingdom of heaven because they were strictly adhering to the law. Uh, Paul himself, in his pre-Christian state, was deluded into thinking that the law could bring him salvation. But he says again, in my if I wanted to be confident, I could be confident in my, uh, my training and my job as a Pharisee. But secondly, then he points to his zeal. He says, as to zeal, I uh, to his energy, to his passions, he says, I was a persecutor of the church. We know that about Paul, right? We know that he had been one of the, uh, the most bitter haters of the early Christians. And he came from his zeal for God, right? His, his zeal for God, unfortunately, uh, misinterpreted by his religion, uh, he made it his mission to destroy all followers of Jesus that he thought were falsely following this false prophet. Um, so he's saying here, if persecuting zeal could have ever opened the gates of heaven, I'd be the first one in. Uh, so that's why he says, again, he has an advantage over those Judaizers. As one commentator said, he said, the Judaizers merely proselytized. I persecuted. <laughs> I was so much more passionate and zealous than the Judaizers even are. And then thirdly, he says, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. So strict was Paul in his outward observance of the Old Testament law as interpreted by the Jewish religious establishment that in that pursuit he became blameless. Now blameless not in God's terms but in human terms, right? In human judgment. His outward conduct was without reproach. What he's saying here is could the Judaizers claim that same blamelessness under the law? Can you, can I make that claim? So three things that he could say my own human efforts added to what my parents gave me uh, could make me self-confident, could make me confident in what I was doing, in my law-keeping, in my zeal, in my right living. And then there's application for us. And you probably know where I'm going, right? What have you accomplished in your life that tempts you to put self-confidence in your standing before the Lord? Maybe you're like Paul and you're confident in your very fine keeping of God's law, that you keep all of God's law. Or children and young people, maybe 
You're proud of the fact that you're different than all your friends at school or in your neighborhood. You don't sin in the ways they do. You don't act the ways they do. Or again, for all of us, can we become proud of our service to God for all the work we do for him, for all the sacrifices we make for him, how much we give to others? These are the things we can put in our resume and our register and and boast some sort of self-confidence in. Well, when we're tempted to any kind of self-confidence for our salvation or sanctification for any part of our life, thankfully, Paul quickly in our text points us to the place of safety, to the place of refuge, the only safe place to be, the only safe thing to profess in our hearts every day. And you see it in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, whatever advantage I had, whatever places I could put my self-confidence in, I counted as loss, as nothing for the sake of Christ. Which those words that Pastor Carl will expound more on through the rest of that section, those words really lead us beautifully to the Lord's table that is set before us this morning. The Lord's table that deals with our safety in those three ways. First, it's the ultimate place to rejoice in the Lord. How can you not come to the Lord's table every time we celebrate communion and and the Lord's Supper? How can you not come and find joy? How can you not come and not find joy in Christ's victory at the cross for you? And then secondly, the Lord's table is also a dramatic picture of the exact opposite of what the Judaizers taught. When they taught salvation by a mixture of of grace and human uh, behavior, human actions, the table teaches us it's by Christ alone. He is the one that had his body broken. He shed his blood. There's nothing in us that we add to our salvation in Christ. And then thirdly, this is the place. This table is the place where we can shed all of our self-confidence and replace it with Christ confidence. We have no confidence in the flesh and we must put our full confidence in him. So brothers and sisters, the only way to be safe is to lose it all in Christ. He alone embraced the perfectly dangerous life and death in order to bring us eternal safety in him. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are our refuge, that you're our safety, that in you alone we have confidence for our salvation. Lord, help us to stay clear from those places that that are dangerous and false teachers in the lack of joy in our own self-confidence and help us to relish and enjoy what you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.